This is Todd Capone. I don't know what the hell I'm doing back here again. I I thought I was done with this like a year ago when I did the show the first time. And then all of a sudden it pops up on my calendar and here I am again on the Sassholes podcast. Welcome to Sassholes. We are revenue ops with an edge. With decades of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Jason, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank the Man Farm Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. Manfarm.com unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to demandfarm.com, ask for Ironman. Hey, check out Brent Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass and Linalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Linalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to Patreon.com slash Sassholes.
Todd Capone, one year ago, and you want some more of this, huh? You came back. I don't, I don't know. How, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, it's like when I do the cut and paste LinkedIn invites and you just accept it. Uh, you, you must have something to sell. That's why you came back on. I what guess you, so. What have you been up to the last year, man? I see, I see you got a leadership book out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when I wrote the first book, and I, I say this, like people say, oh, you're so modest. I'm serious. I thought it would suck, right? Like I wrote a book and I was like, I thought my friends would read it and go like, oh, Todd, good for you. You wrote a book. Like, thank you. And then I would go get a job again. Uh, but my nonsense apparently has caught fire and uh, the book continues to do really well. The long tail on it. Uh, that's the first book, The Transparency Sale. But Right now, looking at the economy, looking at everything that's going on, um, I just see a, a massive hole in leadership, especially revenue leadership, in not only the structure, right? Like most leaders are like a dog chasing a car down the street, but also in the science of what actually drives human beings to intrinsically show up, stay, do their best and tell their friends. And so I've been working on that book for about 20 months. It finally came out in July and Again, for some reason, people are loving it. Putting a book together, first of all, you got to have a good editor, right? Yeah, you know, yeah especially the first book, man. It's uh, what Hemingway said: uh, the the first draft of anything is shit. And yeah, yeah. was he ever right? So, I mean, so how long did up... that book take you? The first book, it took you how long again? Well, how the, many... the first book was faster because I I was the CRO of a company here in Chicago called Power Reviews. And I oh, like, yeah, quit I my job to focus full-time on it. And mm-hmm. so I was able to get, you know, the core of the book really written in about four months. And then the editor beat the shit out of me for months. Uh, we finally got that all fixed up. And uh, I think the book came out, it was probably 15, 14, 15 months after really digging into it. The second book took me a lot longer. And then you add in the supply chain issues, the print supply issues, all that nonsense. And again, it was closer to 23, 24 months from beginning to launch. Because anybody can come up with 600 pages. You got to get down to 200, right? It's like, you know, do you uh, could come up with 600 pages? (laughs) Yeah, you can with graphs and, you know, blah, 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 you know. Yeah, picture yeah, yeah, should have had more pictures. We're we're in the fourth quarter. You got some people that just got into leadership, and I believe some of the surprise board meetings are happening. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's saying, "Oh, we're going to fall short. We need to cut blank." So you got these new leaders that just got in, and they have to deal with these tough conversations that are coming from above. What's going on right now, Carney? What are you seeing out there since you're the finance guy? And then Todd, in your book, I don't know if you address it or not, but how do you deal with these conversations where, hey man, it's not your fault, but you got to go? I mean, I think a lot of the stuff is already in the works. I mean, if you haven't, if if a lot of these companies haven't had any shifts, it's not because they haven't um, decided on their playbook. They just yeah. haven't executed on it yet for one reason or another. So, you know, if you're like, I know <clears throat> DocuSign just got hit again last week. You know, I think that was their second time since the uh, 9%. 9%. And I think the first time was 5%. I, nothing is, in my opinion, nothing is secure. You're the CEO of you. And 
Just focus on what you can control and don't focus on the uncontrollables, which is business. Yeah. Like my nerdery, like when cool people are doing cool things on the weekends, you'll find me curled up with like a 1905 salesmanship magazine. Like I am a sales history nerd uh, and my wife makes fun of me. And you got a podcast too on that. I do. Yes. The sales history podcast, but a hundred years ago, we as a, a profession step on the same rake over and over again, right? Like that's what we do. 101 years ago, there was a circumstance that happened in the sales community where in 1921, the sales community experienced 77% salesperson turnover. And in 1922, it was 85%. And that was involuntary, where sales leaders were purging their entire sales organizations. I saw that in a 1925 book. And I'm like, what? Like, how did that happen? What was the lead up? The lead up was exactly the last six years that we're experiencing today. Almost exactly. And I had an experience last week. I was in a studio and there was a CNBC segment being recorded before me. And I, I talked to the CNBC analysts right afterwards. I was like, so many questions. So here's my rant. The, the, the six years that led up to 1921. Slow and steady growth for four years. So 2014, 2018, exactly what we experienced 2017 to 2020. You have a short-term massive disruption to the economy where the economy shuts off, right? In 1918, we in the United States entered World War I, shut off everything. Everybody focused on the war effort. Like, you know, 2020, of course, COVID shuts down the economy. Doesn't last long, right? We weren't in World War I for long. COVID didn't shut down for long before everything revved back up to an accelerated pace to where the you know supply of salespeople vastly dwarfed what the uh, demand was. You had massive turnover. You could call it a great resignation in 1919 and early 1920, just like here. You then had an inflation spike, right? In, in 1920, the inflation spike was 7% and they called that catastrophic. We were at eight and a half, nine 9% here. And then the bottom dropped out, right? Unemployment went from around 5% to 23%. And sales organizations purged salespeople and their perspective of revenue at all costs. Oh, who knew? Who's heard that before? Went out the window and instead they replaced it with profitable focus. Now, I've been ringing this bell since January going, hey, this is coming. Like, we know this is coming. And uh, meeting with these CNBC people that I did on Wednesday, I was just talking to them about, like, I gave them that rant uh, about, like, you know, that lead up. And I said, the one thing that's different here is unemployment. Like, where, why are we not seeing the unemployment spike right now? And they had just said, there's really two reasons. Number one is the participation rate in employment was lower. Uh, so as a result, you've got a longer runway before that starts to spike. And then number two is because of inflation, those people that have been sitting on the sidelines are only using on-demand work as their method of bringing in income. Because inflation's so high, they're going to go have to start finding jobs soon uh, because costs are going out the window and you're going to see unemployment go up. And as a result, we are in for a long, deep recession, probably not a depression, and they both uh, agreed it's like a stagflation environment where you've got inflation and no growth from a GDP perspective. And I, I 
went and cried myself to sleep afterwards. The participation rate is an intriguing concept here. Um, during COVID, uh, workforce stopped participating because of all the COVID stuff that were that had made enough money, and it, it doesn't seem like they're even thinking about coming back. Like they like it, it might be a little bit different in the fact that that participation rate. You know, you would think we'd have 153 million non-farm payroll. Um, Right now we have a 149 million non-farm payroll is what our, our, I think our denominator typically is. We should be closer to like 156, 157. I don't think uh, that left during COVID. We've been at 149 to 150. I don't think that participation rate is going to go up, especially because the vacation, uh, the, 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 the people that vacated were the older generation. Yeah. Over 40 left you know, for other reasons, maybe they just didn't want to work anymore. Maybe they f didn't feel safe working more anymore, whatever it was. I, I do think that that's where it's a little bit different than what you said, but I, I agree. That's why I think it's not going to be, a, I don't believe it's going to be a long, deep recession as long as we can get uh, inflation under control. I think it's going to be sharp and, and turn around. And I'm starting to see that now with our deals that are coming back. The only reason why I say that is because people are getting paid more unemployment's low, unemployment might go up to about 9% to 10%, but it's not going to get to the 15% of the Great Recession that we had. Um, and and the, the, the main way you get people back to work is by getting them jobs and getting them paid so they have stability to go spend more money. Um, you know, number one is uh, their comment was that a lot of these people that sat on the sidelines and, you know, kind of were never coming back because inflation is so significant. A lot of those people they're starting to hear are going, crap, we prematurely cut the cord on our careers and we got to go back. And number two is when you try to squash inflation by raising interest rates like they have, mm -hmm. uh, you slow growth mm -hmm. in a dramatic way. And so what it'll do is it'll slow inflation, but it'll also slow GDP to a point where that's why they think you squash inflation, but you stretch out the recession versus making the recession take a very short period of time and let inflation fix itself. That, that was their point. Todd, you brought up a year ago, your rant, your, you're ahead of it. You know, you're on here and you, you did that rant. Now, the question I have is a hundred years ago, you needed salespeople a lot more than you need them today is, is my opinion, because you had all the information was centralized and you had to have these human beings go out and disperse the information. Okay. Now, somebody needs the information they know where to get it they've probably the buyer's already made two or three choices they say you know what i think this is what i want now i'm going to see who can who can present the best who am i going to trust is that a fair uh, statement to say about 100 years ago and today well here's a quote so the four words buyers no more nowadays right like buyers no more like we see that all the time buyers no more nowadays it's a threat to our profession well that quote is actually also found in Thomas Herbert Russell's 1912 book, Salesmanship, right? 110 years ago, Thomas Herbert Russell talked about the rise of advertising and marketing as a threat to the sales profession because buyers know more nowadays. What happened? The profession flourished. Fast forward to 2015, so just seven years ago, Forrester in their annual state of sales report issues this warning that by 2020, 1 million B2B sales jobs would be eliminated and 
hundreds of thousands of college students wouldn't graduate into the profession because buyers know more nowadays, right? And what happened? The opposite happened. I, I argue that more information has not made it easier on buyers. It's made it harder. And there's kind of a happy balance in there. And that the profession, the individuals that have understood that and been able to take a clinical empathetic approach to the way that buyers need to process information to be able to trigger a decision. Those are the ones that win. And that's why I think that the profession continues to flourish is that those individuals coming at it going, Hey, listen, we don't buy when we're convinced. I mean, maybe we do, but we're pissed about it. A couple hours later, we buy when we can predict Right. That's why 85% of us go to the negative reviews first when we're reading, a, like, like we're buying something online. That's why a product that's got nothing but positive five star reviews doesn't purchase, it doesn't get purchased at as high a conversion rate as a product that's got negative reviews right under it. Right. We need to be able to predict. We go to that information. And that's why when I really think about the future of sales, it, the lens for salespeople is to help buyers predict to do the homework for them, to bring them the pros and the cons, even highlight where competitors are better, highlight where there might've been issues with the product, where there might be things, pitfalls that a customer like yours that we've dealt with before tends to experience. Illuminate all that, win fast, lose fast, differentiate in the way that you sell. I, I think that's the future of selling too. In today's economy, people do know more and it does, I agree with you 100%. They do know more and it slows down sales cycles because they want to learn more and more and more. And I think with today's economy, the silent threat of doing nothing is more prevalent because people are afraid to sign something and then find out it didn't work out the way they predicted it to be. They don't want to be highlighted in the uh, in the cuts. Well, exactly, exactly. And there's also this idea that um, we as human beings, we bias our perception of a reward by the journey to get there. Right. Like the, the one analogy that I give a lot is like, remember high school, uh, I remember English mm -hmm. class where the teacher comes in and is like, hey, everybody, it's book report time. And you're like, ah, crap. Right. Like book reports sucked for me, at least, because I was a dumbass. But uh, like she'd give you a list of 50 classics to choose from and uh, you can pick whatever book you wanted from there. And like, what do we all do? Well, I looked at it and was like, all right, which ones have I read before? The answer was clearly none because I was an idiot. But then number two was, all right, which one's got a movie made about it? Like, I'll go to the blockbuster because I'm old and I'll find the movie. Mm -hmm. Which one's got Cliff's Notes uh, that have already summarized this thing for me? And then I'm going to read the front cover and just figure out, like, which one do I actually care about? Now, it all gets me to the goal, right, which is to get the best grade possible. But, you know, we as human beings don't go, well, this book's going to fulfill me, like, screw that. I need to get to a reward and I need to get it to it as easy as possible. Our buyers all do that exact same thing. They've got a hundred problems they could solve for at any one time, only the bandwidth to maybe focus on five at a time. And a lot of that five are guided by the effort to get there in the journey. And I, I think that's another thing that salespeople need to realize is the highest ROI is not the projects that get done, right? The the easiest path to a reward are the ones that do, and we need to be able to create that expectation and, again, help the buyer predict. Todd, what are some of the mistakes that new leaders make once they get into leadership? I'm guessing, number one, they shouldn't have took the job in the first place. Or <laughs> what, what, what do you think? 
Well, I mean, it, it really, the core thing for me when I first moved into leadership was I was so used to having a structure and a process, right? I was born into sales where, you know, here's your process, here's your structure, here's your team. You got rev ops. I mean, you got all the support. And then as a leader, you're like, where did all that go? I've got no structure. I've got no process. And every morning becomes defined by whatever direction the car is running and I'm the dog chasing it. Right. And I think that that's something eyes wide open that anybody that's new in the leadership needs to understand is, you know, sales is the ultimate independent role. Leadership is the ultimate dependent role. Like you flip it 180 degrees and now you're rudderless. And so I think like that's a mistake that a lot of reps make is like, hey, uh, when I go to a party and tell people that I'm a manager, they're going to think I'm cool. So that's why I want to do it. Now, take it easy. Understand that you've got to in your heart know that making people better and helping them succeed is something that's super fulfilling for you. And if that's not, don't do it. You're going to freaking hate it. Right. So like, I think that's, that's number one. It's like being a, a teacher, but you're getting paid. <laughs> right? Todd, you got a podcast, the history of sales podcast. Is that right? Yeah. It's called the sales history podcast. Sales history and- podcast. So I'm going to ask you a question now. You're a history guy. Let's go back in time. If you had to do a Mount Rushmore of sales gurus, who would go up on that uh, Mount Rushmore? Well, let's start with number one. Um, I believe that the goat of sales philosophers is a guy named Arthur Sheldon, right? Arthur Sheldon, uh, he is a guy that back in the early 1900s, he wrote his first sales book in 1903, uh, but he created correspondence courses for salespeople that reached like tens of thousands and taught them the right way, right? Like his mantra from 1903 that I, I, I'm doing this keynote tonight and it's like one of my slides as I got Arthur Sheldon and then the little quote bubble, him saying this, that sales is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go, right? And so he really created so many of the processes and structures that really made it buyer-centric that our role as salespeople is not to sell. Our role as salespeople is to service be an aid to the buying journey instead of a necessary evil. So Arthur Dunn, I mean, his books, they're fantastic. The things he talks about, the lens, you would think it was 2022. And like that one, number one. Um, I'll tell you, there's a a second one um, that I've not written about much yet. And it's going to be a podcast episode in season three here. Um, It's a guy you may have heard of, but his name's John Patterson. Um, So John Patterson is the goat in terms of he basically created sales, modern sales, like what we deal with today from creating dedicated territory, like first of all, hiring individuals and training them, right? But before NCR in the early 19 or 1890s, it was drummers and bagmen, right? You hired these manufacturers reps that went town to town and sold your stuff. Patterson was like, we're going to hire people. We're going to train them. And we're going to focus on creating great experiences for customers so they become our best salespeople. He created dedicated territories, variable compensation plans, sales kickoffs, like internal sales kickoffs. Because before, when reps were all competing with each other, they didn't want to share ideas. 
he created dedicated territories, then brought everybody in and they shared best practices. Like the, the things this dude did and like the way that he thought were amazing. He's got a dark side. If you dig into John Patterson, uh, he did spend a little time in jail. Um, he was kind of a lunatic in some ways, but man, that guy was incredible. He could run a sales training. Oh man. Oh yeah, he could. And like, it was amazing. I just was reading a story about him where he was on a train and they're going from a, like one town to another and it's freezing cold on the train. Conductor comes through and John's like, Hey, what's going on with the, uh, like the air conditioner? Like it's, it's too cold in here. And this guy goes into a diatribe about excuses, right? Like, Oh, we got this system and this. And John's like, let, let me stop you right there. Let's assume it was my fault. Now with that behind us, what are we going to do about it? Right? Like that's the way this guy thought is like, I don't care about your excuses, but like, what are we going to do to fix it? Like that one's number two. I've got like 20, but I, I do want to highlight one other person. Yeah. Um, that I think is so important and so overlooked. Um, one of my books on my shelf here is like Birth of a Salesman. It, it's a book from the early 2000s that is meant to outline sales and the history of sales. It misses Arthur Sheldon. It misses a woman named Lucinda W. Prince. I want to highlight her because I believe from my research that this woman pioneered the sales profession for women. Back in the early 1900s, she was a part of a group in Boston, and there was a bunch of like saleswomen that were complaining about the fact that they weren't making as much money as the men and all that. She looked at it not through the lens of, whoa, that's discrimination. It was, hey, these women aren't getting the educational opportunities that the men are. That's the problem. It's not a pay thing. It's an opportunity thing. I'm going to create a school for saleswomen. And she did. And it not only became a huge success, but like in one case, she had, um, she was trying to sell it to companies, right? That like, hey, send your people here. I'll train them and then send them back. And they're like, ah, who are you? Like, like, what do you know? She's like, give me a territory for a week. Teach me your stuff. I'm going to go outsell all your men. They're like, you're on. She went and consistently crushed the other salespeople. And they're like, all right, where do we send our people? Like, that's who this woman was. Uh, she became a celebrity among saleswomen by the uh, late 19, you know, 1908, 1909. By 1911, 1912, sales was being taught not only at colleges everywhere, but in the high school level. And it was all led by Lucinda W. Prince. She was teaching not only, you know, saleswomen, but salesmen at the high school level. Like this woman was freaking amazing. I love her story. I've written about her a couple of times. I did a whole podcast episode, but like my three that are just the biggest are Arthur Sheldon, John Patterson, and Lucinda W. Prince. Well, it's Mount Rushmore. I need one more. Holy cow. There's so many, dude. Oh, um, I, you know what? There's, there's another guy, uh, Worthington Holman. Worthington Holman. Uh, this guy was actually brought up through the NCR Corporation via John Patterson. So he was one of his executives. Worthington Holman wrote, uh, like was a contributor in the first sales training manual ever found, right, in the early uh, 1890s. He ended up founding and was the head editor for a magazine called Salesmanship Magazine from 1904 to 1908. He then merged with Sheldon's Business Philosopher Magazine. And, but this guy could write. His writings are freaking hilarious. They are amazing. He's got a book from 1911 called Ginger Talks, 
which are basically pre-canned talks that a sales leader could share with their salespeople to motivate them. And every, like it's, you know, January, February, March, every single one of them is in ginger talks. And every single one of them is like so powerful and hilarious. I, I just, that, that guy had not only the mind for sales, but the way that he wrote, when people tell me like, Todd, your writing is great. I'm like, thank you, but bullshit. Like these people 110 years ago, they could write, man. And Worthington Holman was, is one of my favorite writers from the era. Because, I mean, it's a history thing, all right? So yeah. trying, to, trying to think like 110 years ago, you had disruptors like Sears and J.C. Penney. You had the catalog. That was like the version of the internet back then, right? So right. I'm sure some people would say that's disrupting, you know, sales. You had the telephone, you know, come into play. What do you think? Well, I mean, the, the catalogs were all the way back in the 1840s and 1850s. I think the first known catalog was actually Tiffany's um, that they were sending out back then. I, uh, I, I don't know if you, you know, for I anybody. Thought it was, I thought I, it was I Sears. That, I thought was it Sears. Sears? Or... I, it might have been Sears. I, I don't know that one for sure, but I, I saw some old pictures of the Tiffany's ones that were sent out way back when. But the... I don't know if you, you know, for anybody who's watching this versus just listening over my left shoulder is uh, my new addition to my office here. Um, I drove three and a half hours to get this bad boy. It is a 1908 uh, phone built by the Swedish American corporation that was uh, refurbished and rebuilt. It's got its original wiring. You like the bell rings on the side. The thing is awesome. I, I have that up there as a symbol of really a reminder of technology and sales, right? That like today, it, you know, we all claim that we are in a sales tech revolution, right? That technology is filling every remaining crevice of the sales process. How great. I would say that's terrible. And here's why. Because so many of us use technology the wrong way. Correct. If you talk about us being a sales technology revolution today, I would argue that the greatest sales tech revolution kicked off on March 10th of 1876 when the notorious AGB, Alexander Graham Bell, made the first phone call, right? Revolutionizing not only communication, but eventually sales outreach. I, I uh, found uh, the first the first B2C uh, telephone script I could find is from 1910. The first B2B one was 1914. But back then, you know, Sales was being taught in colleges and high schools because it was trusted, respected, and admired. We ruined it. And I think technology was step one to ruining that. And here's what I mean. Back then, every sale required a face-to-face -face conversation. You know, shake somebody's hand, sit with them. You can't help but be a partner to these individuals and want to see them success when you're sitting across the table from them. The telephone, this incredible gift, right? We don't even have to leave our house. I don't even have to put shoes on. And I can make sales calls. Eventually, we ruined it to the point where by the 1960s, you know, women like Dr. Shirley Jackson had to create technology to prevent salespeople from selling via caller ID. And by the end of 2021, you know, the government had gotten involved back in like 2003, 2005 with the do not call registry. And AGB would be rolling over knowing that by the end of 2021, there was 221 million phone numbers on the national do not call registry. We did it with the telephone. We did it with email, right? Needing tech to prevent salespeople through 
spam filters and IP blacklists. And then the government had to get involved and created the Can Spam Act, right? We started doing it with LinkedIn. We're doing it with video. Every time we get these technologies, we get blinded by this idea of scale instead of clinical buyer empathy, right? I want us all to think about how can we use technology to create better outcomes faster for our customers? Scale that, right? It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And if we use technology through that lens, I think we can get our mojo back. But most companies are using technology to just, you know, more monkeys at more typewriters instead of really thinking about the buyer. There's so much technology people buy that's additive, that's not in their current process. And they use technology to sort of sell differently, which is completely how you use it incorrectly. You should use technology. You should sit down with your sales reps and say, what are they doing today that I could I could replace with technology and have the same service? And then you're using technology right. Instead, all these companies have drunken tool confetti or a Frankenstack is what one of our other um, uh, people have said. Because they're buying stuff going, if I only had this, I could sell more. And it's like, no, you can't. Because you, you, you're, you're actually creating, like some of these sales reps have five different places they have to go to just to report what they did so that uh, the people like Pete Janssen's can take a look at it with his third line leaders and say, wow, that guy's doing the work. So, yeah, I see that. Number one, the whole problem with technology is going back to your phone on the wall, Todd, it's, it's technology is supposed to speed up a process. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't have an underlying process to speed up, you're just buying this stuff in the hopes of magically getting this outcome, but you don't know what you're doing in, in the first place. Right. So yeah. you get Frankenstacks walking around like this. And then now all the Frankenstacks are getting cut because you're looking at usage. Is that right, Carney? Well, yeah, you're looking at usage. And, and a lot of times they don't know why they bought it. I mean, somebody, but they're all three-year agreements on these software packages. So typically someone bought it and is now no longer there. And they're looking at, go, why did we buy this? Um, turn, on, turn it off and see if anyone complains and then claim it was a bug. Like that was the best way to get rid of technology. I would tell, I would tell reps, I would tell like guys that worked in non-sales, they'd be like, stop doing that report and see if anyone complains. If they don't complain, don't do it. Like they're, they're, like even me, if I'm asking you to do something, if I'm not asking you for it, stop doing it. Exactly. That's hilarious. You know, the um, one example that I see a lot is there's so much talk about video, right? And the video providers and all that. And there's so much of it has to do with using it for prospecting, right? And I like, I don't know, uh, you know, Jamie, if you'd gotten any of these or Pete, but like I got one recently where there was some guy that had my logo above him and he's just like, Hey, you, I'm really impressed by the things you're doing. Right. And it was so generic, but he tries to make it customized by somehow using technology. And I'm like, dude, you are doing this so wrong. And you just Mm -hmm. wasted an like not only wasted two minutes of my life, but now I'm going to think about it for the next 20. I, I look at video as one of those opportunities to think about the buyer, right? And one thing that I started doing and I'm seeing a lot of people do is when you're sending a proposal, like think about the proposal process on the buying end. I send you this seven to 10 page document. You got to read it and then you got to go, all right, I, I'm in. Uh, but now I need to create a sales pitch that I can use to go create the, you know, the consensus or momentum within my organization to actually go get this done. So now you've just created a lot more homework, kind of of like the book report issue in high school. 
And the buyer is just like, ah, crap. I, like this just got a lot slower and a lot harder. One of the things that I'm doing is when I send a proposal, um, I go split screen and I record a three minute video. And I'm like, hey, here's, you know, like, thanks for the conversation. Here's what I'm proposing and what this looks like and why. And here's what the pricing model looks like and where the opportunities are. Here's a couple other things that you can reference around logistics and, you know, other tools, but here's the gist of it. I like the first time I had done that, it was viewed 56 times within two days after I sent it. And I was like, like, did that go viral? Like what with some, do I have like underwear hanging? Like what, what did I do? And when I talked to the CEO that, you know, two days later, he was like, that is changing the way that we think about proposal sending. Because instead of doing it, like, we got to do it live, which is the old school way, to actually send it with a three-minute video, they're able to share it around and build consensus, and it takes no work on their part. And my win rate when I send a video with a proposal is like 92%, right? That using technology to make life easier for the buyer. It's not a trick. It's not a gimmick. It's not using it for evil. It's using it for good. That's the whole point. Todd, you got any tips on how to use uh, video in a sales presentation? Take it from the BDR all the way to the uh, strategic account executive. What you mean in terms of like doing uh, sales? Just using it. What you you do your own presentation at three minutes? So I'm guessing you recommend three minutes, right? And what's in that three minutes that you're going to hold somebody's attention? And from the BDR SDR standpoint, you're selling time, and then. From the uh, national account, strategic account, you're you're selling a larger uh, deal. How, what, what recommendations can you have to our viewers and listeners that are using video or trying to use video for the first time? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to send a recorded video, it's got to be short, right? Like I just go back to when I was a CRO. You know, I used to get 100 to 150 emails a day. Um and I had 30 to 35 meetings per week that I was in. And I, I always viewed email as kind of like the instant lottery, right? Like the little scratch off, like I got to check it because there could be a winner in there, but chances are it's crap. And so I would look at my inbox and I would do a select all delete on all the messages that started with in the, because you get the preview. So I don't yeah. care about the subject line. It was always the first 10 word preview when it started with, um, I just wanted to, or I wanted to, or I was checking, right? Like anything like that, I, you're making it about you. It's not here to help me. It's here to sell me. Like, you could be saying, I, I want to give you a million dollars, but I'm not going to see it because it started with I. I. Um, so like that's, that's kind of where I start. You, you just got to have empathy for those individuals. Now, if all of a sudden my inbox fills up with 23 minute videos per day, do you think I'm spending 60 minutes a day reading emails? No, right? Like this thing has got to pop. It's got to be teed up. It's got to stand out as being here to help me and not to sell me. So I think that that's lens number one. But then lens number two, you've got to be to the point. It's got to be very relevant. I call it personalized and valuable, right? It's got to have both of those things. Make me smarter about my business, not yours. And I'll be your friend forever. They're, a few of the um, people that you see on like LinkedIn and stuff, they, they've got a quote that I steal. That's you'd never go to a bank and make a withdrawal unless you've made a few deposits first, right? It doesn't even make sense. We've got to make deposits first. And that's, I think, a, a tremendous opportunity 
to think through that lens of video. We, we all have ways to make our buyers smarter about their business, not ours. Short, personalized, valuable, make me smarter. One question, one, one thing that we, we, we touched upon, BDRs, SDRs, right? And we, we've talked about how we've overused the telephone until they had to put regulations in. We've overused email. Are BDRs and SDRs overused to the point that they're just manual email spammers and phone dialers that are just, I feel like every company has got a, a troop of uh, BDR, SDRs, and every company, I get I get emojis and all this other stuff from these kids that have, make no sense. And, you know, one kid asked me, he goes, you know, you don't respond to anything I say, uh, any critical, any uh, feedback. And I'm like, one, I think you're yeah. a competitor of ours, two. Um, why are you sending these emojis? That's not professional at all. I'm not going to look at them. And he, you know, he never responded at all. So he guess he got the point, but, um, I was giving him feedback. I was trying to be honest with them, but I feel like BDRs, SDRs have been over deployed. Yeah. I think it, where did they come from? It, it, was it the, the book Predictable revenue from Pete? Pete no, it came from the same, uh, Island that CROs came from that you had to make up that position <laughs> because they're, <laughs> BDRs are just really bad corporate marketing that sales budget pays for. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's all right. We'll we'll have them warm up the market for us. No. Yeah. <laughs> when I think about, like, I often get asked, because there's things in history that history got right that we get wrong today. Um, there's things that history got totally wrong that we look back on and go, what the heck were they thinking? And whenever I get asked, uh, 20 years from now, what will we look at the 2020s and the 2010s about and go, what were we thinking? I think to your point, the, the SDR, BDR, like, you know, pile as much in the top of the funnel as possible through them. Just robot, call, 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 dial, 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 dial. I think that's going to thing that could be the thing that we look back on and go, that was not the smartest path in the world. Like, I, I, yeah, I mean, SDRs, BDRs, we got to keep in mind that every lead that enters the funnel has a cost associated with it. And when we're casting a wide net, we are driving costs through the roof. Uh, I I think just we have to get a lot smarter about branding, first of all. Brand what we give up to be great at our core. Bring customers in pre-qualified. And if you want to use a BDR or an SDR to do some of that initial legwork, cool, but they shouldn't be that mass pile that sits at the top of the funnel and just dials a thousand times a day. I, I, I think we're going to look back on the history of today and go, that was not the smartest decision in the world. Yeah. Yeah. But if you go, if Todd, if you could go back and tie magic wands, how would you do it differently? Well, so when I grew up in sales, so uh, the 1990s, um, I actually was, I guess you would call it a BDR, SDR today, but what it really was, I was at SAP, um, so late 90s, I, they had me partnered with an enterprise rep, right? And basically, I was the enterprise rep's lackey, right? Like, I did a lot of the follow-up, I did a lot of the poking around, uh, doing a lot of the research to make that enterprise rep look great and focus on their most high-value things. I learned so much doing that. He looks back on me as somebody who was vital to his success and we're still best buddies today. Right. And like, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. He's, you know, in his sixties or seventies now. And like, he still looks back on like, that was something that really worked. And 
I think in the late 90s, SAP did pretty well. Yeah. But like, I think that that's a model, especially at the enterprise level. Can we partner up the enterprise reps with the SDR, BDR, and they can be kind of their partner in crime? It, it really worked well back then. And I don't see what was broken about it that we had to fix. Do you think that then the method of compensation should have been uh, team? You get paid on how the team does, you and your partner does. I mean, he gets paid more, but you, you both share in the same success. Because where I go into next is, do you think pay at risk is going away in sales? And do you think we'll get more into a salary team sales? I have an idea what you're going to say, but I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I actually was just reading about this from, it was like 1920, um, where that debate has been going on for 100 years, right? And uh, there was always the debate of commission only is bad, right? Because it incentivizes the wrong behavior. And we've got to understand, especially today in a SaaS environment, and like everything's as a service, product as a service, that the, the signed contract is merely an early milestone to profitability, not the miles, like not the peak, right? There's so much climbing that has, so commission only bad. But when we flip it and go straight salary plus bonus, back then there were companies that were trying it out. Now, what was funny is that when you do that, you reward your bottom performers, and your top performers hate it. They're like, why is that dude getting paid as much as I am? He sucks, right? Like, and, and all of a sudden you've got this situation where you're rewarding the wrong people and penalizing the wrong people and creating disengagement because one of the core things that drives us intrinsically, maybe more than anything else, is equitability, fairness, right? Like, am I, it, it, the rewards equal to the effort and the resource that I put out to go you know, get those rewards. That's why I don't think in a sales environment, you're ever going to see a straight salary plus bonus situations, because again, you're rewarding the wrong people when you do it. No, no bonus. It's the guy, whoever that guy is, it's bringing in all the money. He gets paid more salary than the guy that's not bringing in the money. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's an assumption that you have strong leadership in there. And that's always been the the, the issue on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I could see, it, but that would take time to do. And then what happens if it flips the next year, right? Like, I, it just, I think it becomes such a hard nut to crack that variable compensation, is, it's always been the way. And I, I just don't see it going away in the near future. The, the, we talk about the structure of sales leadership, right? But like, we always, there's always a sales process. Why is there no sales leadership process? Well, there is. There's a structure. I created it. It's the first part of the book. And once it's so easy, and once you internalize it, even if you're an idiot, you're 98% ahead of everybody else that doesn't have a structure or process. I can fire through that structure for everybody. And as soon as they're done listening to this, they could go create a 30, 60, 90 day plan for themselves in 20 minutes and always have a template. Let's go. All right. Todd, talk to me about the ideal structure of sales teams. What do you think? Well, yeah. So it's this idea that. Like I said earlier, I went from being a sales rep with a process to being a sales leader that was a dog chasing a car down the street, right? Every day was guided by whatever direction that car was going. You know, recruiting issue, deal issue, board meeting, forecast, CEO one-on-one, whatever. And I'm too much of a nerd for that. Like I couldn't handle it. And so I sat at a whiteboard with myself and I outlined all of my responsibilities. I bucketed them and realized that every... Uh, revenue leader, their responsibilities fall into one of five buckets, right? All of them. 
And if you know that and you internalize what the five buckets are, you will always have a way to plan and strategize. You will always have a way to communicate. I used it up, down, side to side, board meeting agenda, one-on-one agendas with my CEO, with my reps, with everybody. I used it when like things got hot in the kitchen, right? In board meetings, I would have the five Fs. I would use it for interviews. I used it for due diligence when we were acquiring companies. It's super easy, right? Here they are, the five Fs of building revenue capacity. Your first responsibility and ongoing responsibility is focus. So who is your team going to call on? The right companies, the right individuals with the right prerequisites. You have that responsibility as a leader to make sure that your team is using their most precious inventory that they can turn into revenue, which is their time, the most effective way possible. It starts there, focus. The second F is the field. You've got to build a field organization to support that focus, not the other way around. That field means the right people in the right places with the right experience and the right tools and the right resources. That's your responsibility as a revenue leader. Optimize the field to support the focus. Your third responsibility ongoing is to the fundamentals. Your team's got to get the right things right. From prospecting, presenting, qualification, discovery, negotiating, handoffs, strategic planning, all that. You've got a responsibility as a revenue leader to make sure your team gets the right things right. The fourth F, no surprise, is forecast. Right? You've got a responsibility to predict the future. And the forecast is not only predicting that future, but making sure that you've got the right KPIs and metrics that you're focused on so you can be proactive instead of reactive. And then the fifth F, arguably the cheesiest, but I would also say maybe the most important, is fun. Meaning you've got a responsibility to create a culture where your team wants to show up every day, stay, do their best, and talk about how great you are and your company to all their friends so that recruiting becomes easier too. The five Fs, right? Focus, build a field to support that focus, get the fundamentals right, forecast and fun. You internalize those things. And again, you could be a dumbass. You now have the means to communicate, strategize. And when the when things get hot in the kitchen, you've got it. That's the basis for the, the new book, The Transparent Sales Leader. The structure, tools that you can use in each one to optimize them, and then all optimized by science. And then that F, that, that last F, fun, I dedicate a whole section to the science of intrinsic inspiration of really understanding, like what sales leader really understands what motivates their team and how do you optimize each one of those things. That, that's the basis for the book, the structure, the science, all on a bed of sincerity and transparency. And you can find that all in the first chapter. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, literally, you could probably shut off this podcast and have enough to make yourself be smart enough. You to just go, go to Amazon, get the first chapter and you're done. Exactly. You could do that too. <laughs> Let it that out in post. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I actually joke about that. I'm like, if you decide to put down the book and go to sleep right now, you are 98% ahead of everybody else because you've got a structure and nobody else does. I mean, literally, when I interviewed for my last CRO role, because I've been using this structure since 2008, my last CRO role, the CEO had brought in 13 different candidates for the, the role. I was number 13. I was the only one that had a structure or process. And at the end, they were like, this guy is world class. Now, I don't think I was. Like, I, that's not being modest. Some of those people they interviewed, I knew who they were. They were freaking awesome. But it just makes you sound smart too. But you become smart because you can be proactive instead of reactive. 
and you're seeing the holes before they form, you just need a structure. Just go grab it. Todd, to piggyback off of that, how much time should the people spend on the forecasting part of things? Because it's such a fucking lie. <laughs> it's oh, the, worst. the worst corporate meeting ever is the forecast call. Oh, gosh. Um, I just, I have an article that if anybody wants to look it up, it's in Selling Power magazine. Um, and it's called, uh, I don't remember the exact name, but I wanted to call it Commits, a Petri Dish for Lies. Yeah. Right? Like, I think the word commits is the most horrible word that you could use in a sales organization. And like, I've, I've had this argument with leaders that are like, well, I have a responsibility to commit and you should too. Bullshit. It's completely different, right? The word commits creates an environment where all of your reps are incentivized to lie, right? Your top performers that have a full pipeline, what are they going to come to the commitment meeting with? Not that big number because they're not idiots. They don't want all the eyes on them. So they're going to undercommit and overdeliver. Your worst reps, they're not idiots. They're going to commit their quota. Oh, you know what? That's too little. 105% of my quota. I'm going to do a little bit more of that and I'll deal with the ramifications of ruining that three months later, right? Like we start there, number one. So you end up with a completely inaccurate forecast where your reps have all been incentivized to lie. Number two, you commit at the deal level and that deal starts to go awry. Don't you want your reps to come to you first? What do they do when they've committed? They come to you last, right? It's ridiculous. We're creating this environment where reps are scared to lose. And number three is when they do lose, they blame the customer instead of anything else. And as a result, you lose for the same reasons over and over again. You've got to change that whole dynamic. One of the things that we did, and I preach a lot, is this idea of not only um, like losing fast and but celebrating the losses. Like we did a champagne toast for a rep after he lost a deal. He's already getting hit in the pocket. Yeah. We've got an opportunity to celebrate the effort, but most importantly, the lessons learned. And we had to create a culture where like one company I just trained, they actually celebrate the gaff, the rep gaff of the week, where reps are incentivized on Fridays to come with the thing that they screwed up the most during the week. And they all celebrate those things. And all of a sudden, after about six weeks, there's almost no gaffs to celebrate because They've all learned from one another. That's the culture you're trying to create. I think forecasting, number one, commits are a killer. I've got a whole nother rant about something history got right that maybe we can save for another time, but um, around forecasting. But forecasting, it's the longest chapter in the new book. Carney, let me ask you this. How much time do you think is wasted on this forecasting? Let's just take a rep. You think a rep's taking an hour a week to put that shit together? More than that. And then right, so first line leaders in line. Hour. Everyone's taking cuts. A, 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 a forecast call is based on lies anyways. They call 100,000. The first line leader says 90,000. The second yeah, line leader yeah. says 80,000. So my point zero. is that hour that you're fucking lying. It's a lie. That could, that could be 10 calls. So that's 500 calls a year that you could be hitting the market with and doing that bullshit meeting. I've read a lot of 10Ks and there's a lot of, there's huge investment in these forecast tools out there. I've read a lot of 10Ks and I've never seen any ten, any company thank their forecasting tool for growth in their company, <laughs> right? So <laughs> people are spending a shit ton of money on these forecasting tools. And I'm just like, what a waste of money because it's just a lie upon lie. And it's, it's you, a can, technology you can wish in money. one hand and crap yeah. in the other and see yeah. which one fills up first. I've never seen anyone going, 
We grew because this forecasting tool. No, sorry. Todd Capone, thank you so much for coming on to Sassles. Guys, I, it's so much fun. Like, I, I want to be a third-time returner. We, we, right. we have aged gracefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank the Man Farm Analytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. Demandfarm.com, unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to demandfarm.com, ask for Ironman. Hey, check out Brett Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to patreon.com slash sassholes.